0: Hi, everybody. Welcome to Mormonish. I'm Rebecca.
1: And I'm Landon.
0: And we have a guest that needs no introduction. We have the amazing Dr. John... Oh, my God. Dr. John Lundwall with us tonight. I was concentrating so hard on saying wall because I say well quite often but I messed up his first name. It's okay. Landon, from now on, you're going to take all introductions, okay? I just can't do it anymore.
1: (laughs) Well, Fortunately, he needs no introduction, so I don't know why you even
2: did it.
0: (laughs) I know. That's why he does not need an introduction. Although for those of you that have not come across the amazing Dr. John Lundwall, we are going to link our former five episodes with him in the show notes as we delve into the authenticity of the Book of Mormon. And this episode is going to be really special and exciting because throughout our five episodes, we have had quite a range of responses. Wouldn't you say, Landon? Why don't you talk for a second, Landon, about the kinds of responses we've had to these amazing videos?
1: Well, uh, John's uh, first video was probably our largest video that we've that we've ever done uh, with his the, some of the ideas that he, uh, put out there that were so new or presented in such a different way that you could understand secondary orality versus uh, the, the written word and how uh, the Book of Mormon is it, itself the biggest anachronism. And so we've got a lot of feedback. And originally we had a lot of positive, you know, people saying, yeah, I believe that. Then we could tell where the apologists had read it because we started getting all these, uh, you lie.
0: <laughs> you guys suck. <laughs> and, and
1: questioning, uh, is this PhD legitimate, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> But it's legitimate legitimate enough that uh, the apologist actually, uh, 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 Mormonism with the Murph has done multiple uh, shows where he's uh, tried to uh, allay the uh, fears, I guess, of believing members with scholars from the faithful side. And uh, so that's what we're here to talk about tonight.
0: That's right. We are going to let John respond to some of these responses. And I have to warn everybody, it might get spicy. In our pre-show meeting, we all got pretty spicy, didn't we? So we're going to try to handle it with uh, decorum. So, all right, enough being said, John, just take it away. Tell us what you think about what all these different... I won't even say critics. I don't know if they're critics. They're just other scholars that are trying to put their two cents in. And I will say up front very quickly that anybody that makes a response to John, we have invited to come on Mormonish. We have invited to engage with John. So far, we haven't gotten any responses. So I'll put the call out again. We would love to talk to any of you. I think it'd be a really interesting program to address some of these things. But until then, we're going to have John just go through some of, the, some of the different things people have said and some of his responses
2: yeah uh all right can you see my st- screen we can yeah you, yep. all right uh look there's uh i'm just responding tonight to a couple videos that i watched and i have to say i watched them in airports as i was traveling so uh <laughs> i took notes uh i i have time stamps on some of the notes that are within 10 or 15 section seconds of the actual timestamp, so um Anyway, there was a a video by Neil Rapalese from Scripture Central and Brant Gardner. And I thought I would just start by kind of strong arming their case Uh, by quoting myself. I promise you this isn't vanity, um, but I'm wondering, Landon, can you, this is uh, from my book, Mythos and Cosmos. Can you read that? I can, yep.
1: History is often a philosophical reconstruction. Of course, events really happen. Dates, names, places, and movements are all important. But these are the bricks of history. The mortar that once held these bricks together can be very elusive to reconstitute accurately the mortar being the thoughts, intents, and imaginations that originally, cr- originally created the bricks. When ar- archaeologists examine ancient cultures, they are looking only at the bricks. The mortar has all dried up and blown away. Speaking of the unknown founders of Britain, one eminent historian laments, their memorial has perished with them, their lives, their loves, their hates, their speech, their manners, customs, and scheme of society, their deaths, their gods, all have faded as in a dream. That's Campbell Occidental 35. Reassembling the archeological debris into a coherent whole requires a great deal of training examining materials, manufacturing methods, art forms, languages, and so much more. The truth is, however, that all of the modern methods employed remain insufficient to reconstitute the ancient mortar in its entirety. No matter how well-trained scholars are, they are restricted to fitting together the ancient bricks of the past using only the modern mortar of the present. Modern scholarship often projects a theoretical past of a modern making on historical data and this scholar, scholarly construct is often the product of cultural ideologies, political fads, economic resourcefulness and entrenched and departmental
2: theories.
0: I love that. That is amazing.
2: <laughs> so, this is uh this is a real problem. We have huge swaths of ancient history uh 98 99% of the data has faded away. <laughs> Uh, we, we do have material remains and we need material remains, but very often the metaphysics that created the material remains, boy, that's gone. And, uh, and so it takes enormous amount of work by many different uh, departments, many different theorists, my, many different uh, academics in order to kind of reconstitute the ancient past, and it's always a precarious venture. And so the best thing you can, the best tool you can have when examining the past is epistemological humility. Knowing, you know, okay, there's there's some things we can know, and there's some things we can't know. And that's why I titled this Faith and Reason. Faith is the methodology of constructing things we can't know, and reason is the methodology of constructing things we can know. And human beings are, mess this up. Sometimes we know what we can't and don't know what we can. <laughs> and, uh, um, and, you know, a lot of problems result. So I I'm introducing uh, tonight's conversation in this way, because I have got a model of ancient history um, that we can know. And, and, um, I'm arguing against some arguments where they say we can't know. Uh, So we're going to look at that. While I'm doing that, hmm, there we go. Epistemological humility requires some intellectual honesty. And so here's the methodology I try to use. Uh, Rebecca, I just pulled this off Wikipedia under intellectual honesty. Do you mind reading that?
0: Yeah, I sure will. Intellectual honesty from Wikipedia. Intellectual honesty is an applied method of problem solving characterized by an unbiased, honest attitude, which can be demonstrated in a number of different ways. Number one, one's personal beliefs or politics do not interfere with the pursuit of truth. Number two, relevant facts and information are not purposefully omitted, even when such things may contradict one's hypothesis. Number three, facts are presented in an unbiased manner and not twisted to give misleading impressions or to support one view or another. Number four, references or earlier work are acknowledged where possible and plagiarism is avoided. This is a great list.
2: Well, here you go. What interests me here is not, actually, I'm not interested in disproving the Book of Mormon. I'm interested in truth. That's what interests me. And so uh, when I go out and I'm trying to reconstruct recon- history, knowing all the problems there are in that reconstruction, you do have to really try to keep your own prejudices out of the way. And of course, everybody has prejudices. Uh, I have been in, through many Sunday school lessons and church, I, I know a lot of prejudices there. I've been to many academic university campuses and lectures. There are prejudices there, so um, so here's here's what we try to do. Now I'm comparing this to something like this. Now, I'm going to push play, but my audio on this clip isn't great. So your listeners are really going to have to put their ear to the speaker. so I start out with an assumption that the book of Abraham and the book of Romans and anything else that we get from uh, the restored gospel is true. Therefore, any evidence I find, I will try and fit into that paradigm. I don't feel that I need to defend that paradigm. I feel that I want to understand the evidence that I find within that paradigm, because to me, it's a given that it's true. And so I. Well, (laughs) you've all seen that clip, right?
0: Every time I see it, though, I just am almost less speechless at the idea that a scholar would use that kind of method to arrive at any conclusion.
2: Well, the the you know, look, Carrie Muelstein says, I start out with an assumption that the Book of Abraham and the Book of Mormon and anything else that we get from the restored gospel is true. Therefore, any evidence I find, I will try to fit into that paradigm. Well, is that intellectually honest? Now, I'm gonna argue with in his conception. Of the restored gospel and truth he is being intellectually honest but only within that framework right that's uh the mono mormon theory uh he believes the book of mormon is historical and therefore it's true and the meta-narrative so i mean look he says anything we get from the restored gospel i mean right there you have to stop and say what is the restored gospel <laughs> and uh you know that's the meta-narrative of mormonism i think that's what he's referring to which means a very literal historical Book of Mormon. Given that's true, then let's look at all the data. And once we have that assumption, then we fit all the data into that paradigm. I've talked about this before on your show, the Mono-Mormon theory, when I realized that Hugh Nibley, I mean, the man's a genius, but he did exactly this. He fit all the data into a Mormon paradigm. Was he being intellectually honest? In that paradigm, yes. You step outside of that paradigm and suddenly there are a lot of problems. So tonight, I'm going to be responding to Neil Rapley and Branton Gardner and they are fully in this paradigm. This mono-Mormon myth uh, theory paradigm and um, I'm not in that paradigm and so very often our arguments are going to be talking past each other because they're making different arguments that i'm making i'm going to point that out uh none of this is uh uh personal there, there's no spicy as far as personal i just want clarity and truth okay and so i'm going to point out uh what i think is the truth what i think they're arguing and then i'll let your viewers decide from there all right so there's a couple podcasts that uh, Mormonism with the Murph did. Um, Stephen Murphy, and I got to say, I really like that guy. He's, uh, I think he lives in Ireland. Mm-hmm. I I don't know, but uh, I really want to get back to Ireland. So I hope he watches this and then calls me and says, why don't you come over, stay with me and we'll go to the pub and, and make these arguments together. I got to get something out of this, right?
0: <laughs> Can you invite Mormonish? We want to come too. That That's what we want to do. This will be great.
2: Uh, look, he 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 seems to be a very nice, sincere guy. So he he runs a podcast. Uh, I'm going to start with Neil Rappley. Uh, I've I've got Neil Neil Rappley did a thing on the plates, and at the end of it, he responds to me to my to the podcast I did with you, uh, Rebecca and Landon. Uh, here's his bio that I pulled from uh, Scripture Central. He's he works for Scripture Central. Uh, and you can read that. I, I just note that um, recipient is misspelled. Uh, there's no comma after conferences. They, they just need a little editor to, 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 to correct his bio. <laughs> uh, but uh, look, he's published with um, The Interpreter. And in, I haven't read The Interpreter in years. Uh, and he's won an award for Defender of the Faith, I'm not sure who, Fair Mormon gives that. Fair Mormon. So, but he did this whole thing on uh, the the plates. uh, And then at the end responded to me. So I'm just going to go over some of the information that he presented. And he starts out by saying, uh, people have said that any writing on metal plates was impossible. As far as I know, no one's making that argument. That argument was made in you know the early 19th century when the Book of Mormon came out, and people never heard of writing on metal plates. And uh, so yeah, that argument was made all you know a long time ago. No one's making that argument now. I'm certainly not making that argument, but he spends some time beating the dead horse. <laughs> uh, what? and then uh at about 23 minutes, he um says, Look because examples of writing on metal plates are not like the book of mormon in other words we have not found a single example of any writing on metal plates that really are like the book of mormon this does not mean the book of mormon could not have been made okay so this is where he begins his argument i think this is where he begins to run off the rails uh sure enough this is correct one No one has found any writing on metal plates that is like the Book of Mormon. That is correct. But two, uh, technically right. Just because we haven't found something like that doesn't mean that couldn't exist. But because we haven't found anything like that, now we have to sit up and pay attention and look at all the examples we have and contextualize them. We want, if we're going to try to prove the Book of Mormon using an intellectually honest approach, we need to find uh, some certain markers with that text on, on plates, okay? So he says, look, there are tens of thousands of examples of writing on metal plates. And before you come to some sweeping conclusions about whether the Book of Mormon fits in history, you must sift through this material. <laughs> I don't I don't know what sweeping conclusions might be other than I've argued the book of mormon is not historical. And if he's calling that a sweeping conclusion there's no greater sweeping assertion that the book of mormon is historical. Uh you know that's an extraordinary claim. So you need to give me some extraordinary proof. Uh in any case Here's the problem. Thousands of examples. If we're going to look at those, we need to do what? We need to look for plates in the correct context. From 2400 to 600 BCE in the old world, because that's Jaredite and pre-Lehite time frame. 600 BCE to 400 CE in the Americas, because that's the Book of Mormon timeline in the Americas. This is where we expect to find technologies of writing on plates, of writing histories on plates, because this is what the texts tell us to look for. So here's the time frame. Here's the geographical context. The Old World, we need to find these plates in a Near Eastern Egyptian or Levant geographical context, a biblical context. In the Americas, look, I'll take any of the Americas within that time frame. (laughs) South, Central, or North America. Okay? We have a a, a temporal context and a geographical context. And furthermore, we have to find the same kind of text that the Book of Mormon tells us to look for. Objective history and sermonizing culture. Okay? So... This is what we're looking for out of these tens of thousands of examples that Neil Rappley says exist. Now, here's the problem. When we put that filter on, almost all the examples, oh, wait, all the examples disappear. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that
1: was one thing I noticed during what he was talking about is he he'd say, Oh, well, we found some plates in Europe, and we found some plates in India, and because Jerusalem is in between those, it's very possible that those plates got to Jerusalem, and because they went from Jerusalem over to the New World, it's absolutely possible that they had written metal plates in the New World, because they have, we found some in Europe and some in India.
2: That's exactly his line of argument. Yep. And that is... An incorrect line of argument that that's unacceptable. Uh, so, look, this lays bare a, a couple of differences between my approach and Mr. Rapley's approach. I am arguing from an epistemological approach. I am saying I need to find a certain kind of text, a certain kind of religiosity. Look, I've spent years. Two decades reading mythological materials from diverse cultures all around the world, and you know, after a while, you realize, oh my gosh, there I mean, actually almost instantly you realize this is a different thought world that I'm reading. These pyramid texts, these Near Eastern mythological data, the Vedas, the Adas, uh, the Mahabharata, the I mean, all of it. This is this is definitely the popol vu definitely a different thought world than I'm getting in the book of Mormon that I'm getting uh, in Christianity or even in the Torah. Right. And so what explains these two different thought worlds? So I am arguing an epistemological argument where ultimately, you know, for it seems for decades, everyone's been arguing individual trees in a forest anachronisms here is uh swords in the book of mormon there were no swords in the americas it's anachronism so they argue about that horses right tapirs right uh coinage right they all the anachronisms people have been arguing to me these are individual trees my approach was to step back and say let's not look at the trees for a second let's look at the forest and when you have a bird's eye view, we can look at how cultures form, how they evolve, how they transmit information, uh, and and sort of the bedrock of the cultural DNA. You know, not only are we looking for biological DNA, which there is none, <laughs> but I, I my approach is cultural DNA. How 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 are the uh, cultures formatting and transmitting their knowledge? Because I can tell you. With orality, uh, it's a it's a different epistemological model. And that's all I find in the Americas. So how are we getting the Book of Mormon text there, right? So this is my argument. We have five podcasts together. Neil Rapley is not arguing epistemology. He doesn't even address my argument. He stays away from it. He is arguing technologies. Just as you said, Landon, what he says is, look, if we have plates and we have writing, then we have a probability of the Book of Mormon.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it was quite a stretch. I I, I couldn't believe some of the arguments he was making uh, and putting, it it didn't have to be in any plate, anywhere in the world he could find an example. And even though none of these examples were in the same spot, he then put them together and say, because it existed anciently, we can, we can say that it probably or could have happened in the Americas, uh, which are two completely different worlds anyway. The, anything in the old world getting to the new world, is, is that, that's just poppycock <laughs> to say that that, that that technology, because it was available in the old world, was available in the new world as well.
0: And I think Murph pointed that out, didn't he? Didn't he say a few things about that, that you seem to be mentioning things from all over? I thought I remember that he did. Maybe I'm
2: wrong. Any Anyone can flatulate in a water pot next to a lead pipe and call it a steam engine, but that doesn't mean it's a steam engine. You can have the components, but that does not create the technology of a steam engine, right? So if you have writing and you have plates, that does not argue for the Book of Mormon at all. Most of his arguments to me are irrelevant. Well, look, I am... I, you know, as I pointed out, my arguments are epistemological. Here are their examples, right? This is what Scripture Central listed on their website as proof for the probability of the Book of Mormon. And I just laid the mountain and said, that's a ritual text. That's a ritual text. That's a ritual text. You know, I only did this, guys, as a way to falsify my model, right? I I, I read the Book of Mormon with orality and literacy in mind. And, and by the time I was done, I was like, this is totally anachronistic from page one to the page of the end. How can I double check that? How can I falsify that? Well, one way I can do it is, you know, let's let's look at writing on plates. Let's let's see what I can find. Oh, look, it's a ritual tablet. It's a ritual tablet, it's a ritual tablet. In other words, all this writing belongs to the epistemology. Of a religion being ritual and cosmological, these these plates are binding the participants to the divine realm. They're they're uh, textual forms of baptismal fonts. They are not historical literary texts, which the Book of Mormon is, or which the brass plates are, or which the gold plates of the Jaredites are. Right, and so just by looking at this, I'm saying, oh. All these examples they're using argues against their argument. Do you understand? We we went over this. I spent a lot of time actually looking at everything I could find in the Americas, and there's I only found again one example of writing on plates, and that's uh, the mind gold discs. And again, they're ritual tablets. Well, look, Neil Rapley, just as you said. He has several examples from Spain to Korea, almost all post-dating the Book of Mormon timeline by centuries, and almost all of them are ritual texts. (laughs) In other words, they belong to the wrong epistemology. Right? These people are not writing objective histories. They're using their metal plates in in ritual cosmographies. So um, this does not help him. Yeah, nor, you, you, You've got
1: yeah. to mention that last part there, moving the goalposts, because I, I just I just hit my head when he said that, that, you know, he said, oh, forever people were saying that they don't write on plates, and now they have. They're all moving the goalposts. And it's like, we're moving the goalposts. We're saying you have to have context. It has to be in this place, in this location, in this language. All the things the Book of Mormon requires have to be there, and they're not. You're simply saying, oh, because you're saying someone said it wasn't on the plates that everyone's moving the goalposts on you because as soon as you find something writing on plates, that proves the book of Mormon because everyone said it wasn't. So we found writing on plates. Therefore the book of Mormon's true.
2: Yep. it's essentially the methodology. I, uh, again, he's arguing technology. I just need to find writing plates, lengthy writing, you know, he gets into size, thickness, you know, uh, Jerry Grover's arguments, we'll talk about it. But but essentially, none of that's my argument. I mean, we talked about that on one of your, you know, podcast three or whichever it was. Mm-hmm. Um, We talked about it, but that's subsidiary to my argument, which is an epistemological argument. And sure enough, I to me, this is moving the goalposts. I, I need to find historical writing, and y- you're just, any writing, any culture, any time frame will do. I'm sorry, but no, that is incorrect methodology. Not not Stop. Stop. That works within the mono-Mormon framework. It does not work anywhere else. Okay? So... Uh, He asserts you can't maintain that something like the Book of Mormon is impossible anymore because we have found lengthy documents on metal plates, utterly and totally irrelevant. Thickness of plates. Uh, They go to uh, quite a bit of length discussing, you know, because quite frankly, when I began looking, I mean, just this is just me trying to falsify my model. And I, I, I didn't even think of this as a TBM. But I'm like, wait a second. There's 335,000 words in this Book of Mormon text, including the lost 116 pages. And here's the description of the plates. How in the hell are you going to fit? How the hell are you going to fit all that text? Right. And so, you know, Jerry Grover to the rescue, one tenth of a millimeter <laughs> Tumbaga plates and, you know, one millimeter height writing, We can do it. Well, sure enough. Of course you can do it if you do that. But, He he talks about the Maya gold discs. They're between, I read, between one and two millimeters thick. He has between one and 1.6 millimeters thick. They're between one and two millimeters thick. And again, the Maya gold plates, just so your listeners remember, they date between the 9th and 13th century CE. There might be a few outliers there. Um, And they're all ritual discs. They were gold. Some of them appear to be golden alloy. You know, you could say timbaga. Uh, But a ritual scene was inscribed on them. A few of them have Mayan glyphs. Uh, And they were taken to a cenote, an underground water pool, ritually killed, torn apart, and thrown into the cenote as part of a ritual. Most of them have military scenes on them, which probably means that this was some ritual before a battle to propitiate the gods, hoping for a successful battle, or maybe after a battle, thanking the gods for winning it, right? And so, um, but it's an entirely a ritual disc, uh, has nothing to do with the epistemology of, of the Book of Mormon. So, uh, again, he he cites the Mind Gold Disc as an example, because that's the only example there is of any kind of writing. And most of the discs don't have writing, but some of the discs have mind glyphs on them. And so, you know, they I can't remember. They range from seven inches to 11 inches in diameter or so. Um, He also cites the find of a tumbaga bead found in Mesoamerica in the fifth century. And the tumbaga bead is 0. 0.4 millimeters thick. Which means, according to Mr. Rapley, they're making Timbaga and it's, you know, half a millimeter thick, which is where we need the plates to be. And so they have that technology. And then when we look in South America, we find Timbaga that's engraved. They have that technology. And when we look in Mesoamerica, we have Mayan golden disks with some glyphs on them. So they have that technology. Therefore, we can argue the Book of Mormon.
0: Can you explain what Tombaga is very quickly in case somebody missed you talking about it before? Just very quickly.
2: It's an alloy where you mix gold, copper, and silver. Um, And that brings down the weight. Gold is very heavy. Copper is much lighter. And so um, Tombaga is an alloy where they're combining the metals. It it makes it more durable. Um, The problem, of course, is, uh, again, these arguments are irrelevant. The gold disc uh, argue against the Book of Mormon. That's a, that's a ritual disc. It's a different epistemological framework. You need to show me, Mr. Rapoli, a history written on metal plates. Old world or new world? Okay? But especially in the new world. Uh, and this is all that exists. Now, the bead, I actually think the bead's really interesting. A tumbaga bead, I think it was in Honduras that... It shows up in the fifth century, which is decades after the Book of Mormon, but he qualifies this as ha, we got Tumbaga in Mesoamerica. <laughs> okay.
1: Uh, uh, and I, John, one, one thing as I was listening to this that came to, to, to my mind is they kept talking about Jared Grover's uh, thickness and how he was able to narrow it down and how thick he how thin he was able to get it and that he was able to write on both sides yet they never showed a picture of that. Uh, they they talk about it, but there was never a picture. There was never anything that would demonstrate or allow the, the listener or the person watching to see what it was that they were describing. Right, um, and we
0: should probably clarify that Jerry Grover has created, by it, you mean some actual plates of a certain size.
1: I think he but made we, one because he yeah. said it was very expensive. He said he made one and tested this. Uh, and was able to get it that thin, and yet there's no pictures of it or anything like that. Uh, I mean, that certainly would have added uh, some sense for the reader to see what, what what this would even look like. Or could these could one you may be able to write on it, but could it be lit, you know, linked by uh, rings and then turned to be read without ripping or tearing or coming apart, or some of them falling out? You know, all of those questions would that, that could be raised by just looking at that and going, wait a minute, does this even work in my mind?
2: Uh, even if Jerry Grover made a super metal uh, that was as thin as paper, wrestled like tin, and you could write the entire Book of Mormon on one page, it's irrelevant. Uh, it doesn't matter what Jerry Grover made. You have to find this in the, the American time. yep the place and the time yep um that's again anybody can fart in a water pot next to a lead pipe and that does not prove you have a steam engine you have got to go out and show the steam engine okay I, i i don't mean to be crude but that is what you have to find look i um very often, the first thing that gets traded between cultures is uh, high-interest trade goods, such as jewelry. This tumbaga bead that's found in Honduras, 5th century CE. You know, that the largest Fremont... I, I look at uh, the Fremont culture in ancient Utah, 300 to 1300 CE. The largest of the village, uh, which is in Fremont Indian State Park uh, near Richfield, Clear Creek Canyon... The big hill over a hundred structures on it. Um, they found really interesting uh, a culture with no writing primary orality hundreds of thousands of petroglyphs, pictographs, but zero writing but what they did find was material goods including goods they knew were part of a trade network because they found seashells from the California coast. they found uh, obsidian, sourced from uh hundreds of miles away they found um oh good grief what's the the uh blue green stone um In- turquoise 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 thank you oh my gosh let's not let's cut that out they found turquoise <laughs> uh sourced from Nevada and New Mexico Ga- gaming pieces fr- uh, from the ancestral Puebloans so we know that there were wide trade networks. Furthermore, there's like images of buffalo in the petroglyphs, so the Plains Indians are trading. The uh, you know they're they're getting seashells from the west coast. They're and so we know that stuff like this is getting traded. That has absolutely nothing to do. The Tumaga bead has nothing to do with uh, the authenticity of the Book of Mormon. Tumbaga originates in the Andes, uh, Peru, South America. Those cultures never had a writing system. Uh, ever. In fact, as far as I'm aware, the Inca Empire, which arises out of that area, is the only empire that existed without writing. They 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 kept their information in textiles, in quipu knots. And we don't know how that exactly worked, but um. So there's no writing where Tumbaga originates and there's no writing on Tumbaga plates. You have some ritual discs that are centuries after the Book of Mormon in and Itza. Now you can argue, of course, that, you know, most of it gets lost or destroyed. That's true. Most of it does, but it doesn't matter. You've got to show this technology does not matter what Jerry Grover produces. I, of course modern technology is going to allow you to produce a tumbaga plate that makes it work you've got to find that in the ancient context what what's it going to be to create thousands of tumbaga plates uh and then engrave uh writing on them i th- that is a technology that is a culture that's going to leave a fingerprint there's a writing system on it that's going to leave a fingerprint where is that? That's what you got to show, uh, and they have not shown any of it. So, um, I think that was the
1: biggest argument that I saw with Neil. What Neil was producing is he was taking uh, he was taking a technology from the Andes. Uh, the Mayans had a writing system. Mm-hmm. The Koreans wrote
2: mm-hmm. on
1: plates, and the Sumerians wrote long history, long narratives. Therefore, the Book of Mormon had to be true.
2: Well, it's it, yeah, it's like that. So, um, look, I, you know, I, it's, it's bizarre, uh, because, uh, that, um, that's not what you do. I, I, so I, I, I I'm, after watching that, I'm a little speechless. Anyway, it's okay. All the technology required for the making of the gold plates exists in Mesoamerica by the tail end of the Book of Mormon timeline, he, he asserts. Uh, we don't have explicit examples of extensive writings on ancient metal plates in ancient America or whatever. <laughs> That's what he says. The technology to make Tumbaga, <laughs> to make it thin, to engrave on it, exists in South America in Book of Mormon times, reaches Central America by the talent of Book of Mormon times. Uh, you know what? It doesn't reach Mesa. Metallurgy does not enter Mesoamerica till until after Book of Mormon times. So, th- I mean, this is just factually incorrect. Uh, I, and... Actually, the Tumbaga jewelry, this is what they did with Tumbaga in South America. They made jewelry, ritual regalia, little ornaments. Um it has nothing to do with his argument. So um, you know, I I too can buy an earring and claim that the Library of Congress was written on ancient Tumbaga. <laughs> that, that, that that's irrelevant. Um <laughs> They can write whatever they want, and they had the technology to do it. The question of the Book of Mormon is a question of technology. So, really, this is his argument. Look, and just as you said, we've we've got Timbaga here, we got writing here, we got this over here. We can combine it all. Uh, that that's not even arguing probability. The probability is still extremely low. So, um, uh, I. This is very difficult to do. Well, look, he then, you know, he he gives the hat away by saying, The testimony of the Three Witnesses tells us there are a set of plates. When arguing plausibility, we must argue within the framework of what are the most likely explanations of this artifact. It is very unlikely that Joseph Smith made a set of plates. Therefore, they are most likely an ancient set of plates. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and once you come to that conclusion it's now a matter of understanding how did they make it Well there it is this is this is the <laughs> mono mormon theory uh he he says look there is a set of plates I agree there are a set of plates every lots of people said they held some, a metallic object under a towel we have at least three people who said we held and looked at a set of metal plates um you know, but then he says it's very unlikely that Joseph Smith made a set of plates. Really, but really,
1: but it's more likely that tambaga was transported, used, and transported by an angel yep. uh, to a to a young boy who then used a rock and a hat to translate. Yep. it.
0: <laughs> way um, more likely. Again, Way more likely,
2: I'll, you know, I'll let the, the viewers like I'm not going to be convincing any TBMs with this yeah. uh, discussion tonight. Mm. And the critics are, you know, are already critics. Uh, really, I'm just arguing here. Let's have the pursuit of truth. And may, maybe the rising generation can adjudicate outside of the two camps. Okay. So I guess that's who my audience is. <laughs> uh, uh in any case, um here here's here's the epistemological framework he's arguing from. And you know, with within that framework he's the, the 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 flip
1: side of that is he says it's very unlikely that Joseph Smith made a set of plates. So it's possible that Joseph Smith made a set of plates. Did he have the technology? To make a set of plates, <laughs> absolutely he did. yeah yep. but that's the we, same argument they're right. using for. Well, right. oh, there was a set of plates, and there's absolutely no proof for that they really had the technology. But we yep. clearly know Joseph Smith had the technology to make a set of plates,
2: Landon. That's yeah. brilliant, right?
0: Look at the Kinderhook plates, right? Manufactured there, oh. they were similar metal writing. The technology existed for Joseph to make those plates,
2: right? So let's apply the same methodology. That he just applied. Uh, uh, let's look for plates writing on them, any time frame, <laughs> any culture, to see <laughs> if Joseph Smith made the plates. Well, look, I can use all the examples they use for the Book of Mormon and say Joseph Smith made them. <laughs> yep. Yep. <sighs> oh my gosh, <laughs> it's a little funny. <laughs> it's really funny, actually.
0: We might have to do an episode on that. Seriously, it's really good. It's a great argument.
2: All right. Uh, I just want to go specifically to uh, what he said about our uh, episode together. Uh, he said, look, Lundwall's analysis uh, was between one and three millimeters thick per plate based on what? Neil's saying, what's he basing that on? Well, I'll tell him. Uh, the Maya Gold Discs mm-hmm. were between one and two millimeters thick. So I I did analysis of three millimeters, two millimeters, one millimeter. Actually, uh, you know, I, I, I looked at. Uh, I didn't look at, you know, so let's strong arm his argument. I didn't look at tens of thousands of examples when I was looking through metal plates. I looked at about 40 examples within that context. Right. Biblical within that time frame, America within that time frame. And everything I found, okay, confirmed my model. If they have an example that discounts my model, I'm all in. Show it to me. He thinks maybe he's provided some examples, but he hasn't. Uh, In any case, one to three uh, millimeters thick was my argument. He asked, based on what? And, okay, the Maya Gold disc between one and two millimeters thick. This is the same Maya Gold disc that he referenced to prove that they
1: were riding on.
2: Yes,
0: gold. exactly.
2: Yes. It
1: course. works
0: when it's convenient. When it's not, it doesn't. It's pick and choose.
2: Actually, most of the examples I found were, uh, you know, within this range, one, two, three millimeters thick. Um. So he, of course, discusses the work of Jerry Grover and says, you know, a tenth of a millimeter thick. Other people say half a millimeter thick. Um, so, uh, you know, all I can say is you got to show it. You got to show it. Uh, this Again, this is a subsidiary argument I'm making. I'm not making a technological argument. That's That was just a footnote. I'm making an epistemological argument. Uh, Then he says, look, I'm not impressed with Lundwall's understanding of ancient metal writing. Lundwall did not sample a wide breadth of samples. I didn't pick the low-hanging fruit. There's Roman diplomas with writing on both sides. There's a Samaritan silver amulet that's only a tenth of a millimeter thick with writing on both sides. Lundwall had a very superficial knowledge of the ancient data. Well, again, I'm arguing epistemology not technology. I can tell you that Samaritan silver amulet uh is like a lot of the silver amulets that uh were made it's silver foil with a ritual inscribed on it, <laughs> a ritual prayer, a ritual spell, right? This is a healing amulet. Um and uh sure enough it's a piece of foil that they have carved uh or inscribed some glyphs on each side you're going to tell me you're going to write a 335,000 word document on gold foil on both sides really um i i'm i'm not so sure i have uh, you you know look i
1: you don't have that much
2: faith
0: (laughs) anything is possible (laughs)
2: Uh, In any case, uh, he he says, I don't want to have a protracted debate, uh, but was underwhelmed. Lundwall's approach is too simplistic.
1: So let let me get this straight. Your approach of approaching ancient plates, as described by Scripture Central, who Neil works for, you took their examples, the ones they pointed out as the best examples And you showed that they were all ritualistic. None of them had narratives on them. None of them were that thin. But because they found a foil-thin bracelet that had imprints in it, that the Book of Mormon could have been written. And you're too simplistic by just approaching those plates.
2: Well, that's about the breadth of it. Uh, One of the examples I did go over was a silver scroll. And it was thin. It was quite thin. Mm-hmm. And it did have writing, I think, on both sides. Uh, but I did. I used all the examples that were listed in the Scripture Central article and showed that they were uh, outside of the epistemological framework they needed it to be in. Literally, they're just looking for metal and writing in mm-hmm. a, a lengthy, lengthy document. <laughs> and what? that... It doesn't matter. Time, place, context. Yeah. Uh, and... Um, I have to say that that's a water pot and a lead pipe.
1: And I want, when you say epistemological argument, that there, what you're talking about is, is that the Book of Mormon is written as a historical narrative. And you're arguing that we find nothing written in this format that is a historical narrative that talks specifically a very christian doctrine not a ritual not a dance not an not the kind of things that we're seeing in the ancient world this is a different epistemology it's not tied to the cosmos and to the world around them but rather it's a view of god similar to uh modern day christianity and we correct. find nothing that ever approaches that in, in anywhere in mesoamerica writings
2: correct Show me
0: a tambaga bead that yeah. has an argument about infant baptism on it and I will go back to church.
2: Exactly, Rebecca. <laughs> no, that's what we're looking for. Yeah. We are looking for not a tambaga bead but a tambaga bead with a sermon on infant baptism. Yep. yep. This this would
1: be the equivalent of looking at Roman uh documents and and uh expecting to find uh, a bunch of stuff about a bunch of Buddhist sayings in it uh, <laughs> because it, it's not the same mindset. We're going to find things about Roman gods, maybe Christianity if we're late, later Roman, but that's what you, you you should find when you read Roman documents. You should find information about Roman gods. And when we look at Mesoamerica or anything in the New World, any of the writings, none of it references anything like a Jesus Christ or uh, Yahweh or any of those other uh, yeah, we're looking deities. for
2: monotheism.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Yes, monotheistic art, monotheistic. Uh, well, we're looking for Semitic alphabet. Yes, <laughs> we're we're looking for the law of Moses. The entire culture lived the law of Moses in writing, right? We should be finding brass, bronze, uh, steel. Yeah gold tumbaga plates with the law of moses inscribed on it affixed to temple walls. Um yeah. I you know. All right. Uh I I did enjoy this because they talked about my argument of the book of ether. To me, the book of ether is just it, it really is devastating to the truth claims of the historicity of the book of mormon because it's so early it's it's deep it originates deep in antiquity deep into the bronze age uh with the jaredites and the book of mormon gives us a plate count they're 24 gold plates and of course you know i made the argument you know we do, it doesn't describe the plates we don't know how big they are but they're portable because they're carrying them around and so you know if they're approximately the same size as the rest of the plates it doesn't really matter actually because we only have 24 of them uh, moroni makes an editorial comment i can only write 100th so what i did is there's seventeen thousand words in the book of either One hundredth that means there's 1.7 million words in the source text how are you going to fit that re- on 24 plates regardless of their size unless of course they're you know the size of skyscrapers so um uh, and of course, uh, so Neil responds to this. He he says, we have no description of the Jaredite plates. They could have been really large, like 16 by 33 inches, he says. <laughs> okay. Uh, they're Tumbaga, a tenth of a millimeter thick, so they wouldn't be too heavy. Um, or they could even be 24 books of plates. Like they could be 24... Libraries of plates, <laughs> yes, that argument
1: just uh, he kept saying you were making a lot of assumptions, and then he said ah, it could have been 24 books. When they said plates, they probably meant 24 different sets of plates that were books,
2: yeah. He, no, they had I, a whole
1: library, uh,
2: I think it's Messiah chapter eight. They talk about the 24 gold plates. I, yeah, to me, uh, you know, we don't have a description, uh, within the logic of the narrative, I can't say how big they are, but. Uh, To say that there are 24 books of plates is pretty absurd. Uh, So then, of course, what's on it? Well, they give us a description. It's the history of the Jaredites, all their wars, all their kings, uh, a history from the beginning of the world, the creation, the patriarchs, Adam, Enoch, right? And uh, prophecies of all the future. In other words, on those 24 plates is the history of the world from the very first day to the very last day. Right. It's revelation. It's the end of days. Right. All of it's on these 24 gold plates. <laughs> and and Reply says, well, maybe what we have is basically what was on those 24 plates. Well, I again, the text. Am I the only one reading the text? They they keep saying they keep trying to prove the text from the text. And yet when I bring the text up, they say, well, it doesn't really mean that or. mean <laughs> You're not supposed to read the text,
0: John. That's the secret. Or if you read it, you're not supposed to take it literally. That is how it works.
1: And and that was very noticeable. When you'd read, oh, the text says that they could read and write. They'd say, well, they couldn't really write. What that meant is they wrote it and then distributed it and somebody read it. They couldn't really write. The people couldn't read. It yeah. meant it was explained to them and they opened their mind to it. That's what it meant when it said they opened right. their scriptures and read the word.
2: That's brand. We're going to talk about that in a second. Yeah. Okay. I, I just wanted to um, say, he, uh, let's see, a hundredth part. Uh, uh, Rapley says, anyone who has an elementary understanding of the English language should know what an idiom is. We have no idea how literal that is. There's a lot that won't fit in our translation, whereas others argue that the Book of Ether is about the same size as the text we have. So, you know, he was a little bit pejorative in saying Lundwall has an English degree. Uh, Anyone who has any elementary understanding should know what an idiom is. Sure enough, you know, when Moroni says, I can only write one hundredth part, I know what an idiom is, Mr. Rapoli. And I, I I I know that if you're using the idiom 100th part, it's not half, Mm-mm. right? If it's half, you'd say half. Well, 100th part means the vast majority of it you're not touching. And so if 17,000 words in the Book of Ether, the vast majority of it does not get in our plates. And I'd like to mention one more thing, Mr. Rapley. One hundredth part is a Nephite idiom. Where does that come from? Jacob uses it. Mormon and Moroni uses it, which means that that idiom existed for the entire thousand year Nephite history. One hundredth seems to me that that's a decimal system, numbering system, which is interesting because Mesoamerica (laughs) has a vigesimal system based on uh, 20. Right, the, the 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 ones column is ones. The second column is twenties. The third column is four hundreds. They're not. If it said one four hundredth part, I'd be like, well, that's really interesting. That belongs in four, Mesoamerica. <laughs> so, so now I'm looking for uh, a Semitic, alphabetic, decimal system. In a calendar that's rooted in 600 BC as a start date, because they count all their years from when Lehi left Jerusalem. I need to find a culture that's producing this. Uh, it's not just Tumbaga plates. It's not the bead with the uh, sermon of the infant baptism on it. I've got to find all of this. Even this idiom is really problematic. In any case, I you know you could argue that it comes from the old world. But uh, again, you you, got to find where's that numbering system in the Americas? Maybe they can find it. All right. That's Neil. Uh, I just, uh, Brant did an episode September 28th. It's been a while. I I, I probably should have responded to this earlier, but I was very busy. Uh, Brant, I... you know I I don't know Neil but brandt has been around he's part of the old guard uh he you know he's, he's got a degree in anthropology he's written he's a prolific writer uh he's smart um so he he argues from the mono Mormon theory uh so he did an episode and uh, let's just talk about it he starts off by saying that my Lundwall's model is a generalization. There are exceptions to generalizations, he says. Lundwall deconstructs Joseph Campbell's monomyth theory, but does not apply that kind of deconstruction to his own theory, and thus Lundwall applies his own monomyth theory to the Book of Mormon. This is his argument. So here's my theory. It's an anthropological model of orality and literacy, uh, sure enough you know because I'm stepping back and look at, looking at the forest it is a general model and in a general model you will have outliers you will have exceptions I agree with Brandt on this uh by the way Brandt's own approach is also a general model <laughs> he he uses convergent parallelisms which is very broad anything in the Book of Mormon that might tie with anything out in the Mesoamerica, we're going to combine and call it a hit. Um, It's not very specific. So, look, what I'm doing is I'm looking at the cultures and their traditions and uh, seeing that they're polytheistic, they're cosmological, they're agricultural or hunter-gatherer. Um, and they conform to a, a specific kind of thought world. I I look at all those examples, I build my model. These guys have a model and they project it into the data, right? They've got a Book of Mormon text. Now, how are we going to make this work? Because sure enough, we don't have any writing on Taboga plates. Uh, we, we don't have any, you know, th- th- actually they have nothing. They don't have linguistics they don't have dna they don't have (laughs) archaeology so uh in any case um as you said i'm making an epistemological argument we've gone over this uh i know what the book of mormon has has objective linear histories lots of isaiah allegories, sermons letters wars monotheism it's orthodoxic it has a canon of literary laws and beliefs that are um, manifest through sermons, through objective history, uh, through established scripture, Isaiah. Isaiah Isaiah is throughout the Book of Mormon, right? I can look at Mesoamerican traditions, both oral and secondary oral. I can't find any of that, any, anywhere anywhere so um i that's a real problem well here is the heart of brant's to me at least uh, like the maya gold disc the only example we have of any kind of writing on metal plates and it's a ritual most of the writing again no writing in north america heartland models off the table no writing in south america so I don't know what all this discussion of Tobago is. That's where it originates. And there's no writing. <laughs> the only writing we have is in Mesoamerica. America. Most of it gets lost or destroyed. I agree with Brand. Most of it does get lost or destroyed. Doesn't matter. We have one major text. It's a Mayan text of the Kiche people called the Popol Vuh. We went over it in our last as ep- part of it, right? We read a couple of the opening paragraphs, because I was trying to show what kind of text it was. Um, It belongs two feet in the oral world. It is a creation narrative that's deeply astronomical, astrological, and agricultural. Um, So just to recite, the Pope of Vuh is a foundational myth in history. It's a pretty long text. It gets written down after colonial contact because the Popovu was not a text. It was always a performance. It was a ritual. Popovu means council book, and it referred to a woven mat that all the astronomical priests sat on where they danced their creation narrative while looking at the sky and prognosticated the future, their agricultural cycle, political needs, etc. So the Popovu was an oral product well they get colonized the spanish come and and they lose the place where they keep track of this religious ideology they no longer have access to it and people are dying you know millions of people die after spanish contact through uh, the spread of viruses i mean some estimates up to 90% of all populations, uh, you know, between 60 and 90%, depending on who you read, it's hard to, but in any case, the vast majority of people die. So look, they record in writing this oral tradition that is a ritual tradition. They write it down in 1550. There is a Spanish priest, Francisco Jimenez, who in 1701, writes a copy of it down. We have, a, a, in two columns, a quiche and a Spanish writing of it. Uh, it's it's a pretty lengthy text, as Grant makes clear. This is about 60,000, 65,000 words. But if you remember, in our last episode, the A-tier scholar on the Popol Vuh, Dennis Tedlock, said, if we were to do a literal translation from the quiche into English, what would we be reading? Do you remember? <laughs> I can't hear you. Oh,
0: were you asking us if we remember? Yeah, was it a, remember. a war story?
2: Or it, it,
1: it, it would just be uh we you know, we don't even understand it. It was very cosmological. Right. Really? Uh, okay, uh, I know we what we didn't you mean. know yeah. what it
2: was even meant. Ba- baboon's right. penis, baboon's Oh, alien. Okay, yeah. Well, we yeah. Be reading, it right? Was... Like the pyramid text. Yeah would not understand it, it would come across as gibberish. Uh, and so even the, the the version of this that gets written down has been transliterated from the oral tradition into a literate storytelling Spanish version. And even that, we, we lose most of the context. But okay, I'm just introducing this document that we have because it's our one major historical document. This is where they recorded history, the Maya. Um, so the Vuh has three parts, a creation account, there's a big cycle of the hero twins that go through the underworld, and then the mythical history and the founding lineages of the Maya people. The text is not necessarily sequential or chronological. Okay, none, nothing. So Brant refers to the Vuh and says, look, they have a writing system. People with a writing system can write whatever they think. I agree with Brand. If you have a writing system, you can write whatever you think. Um, the pulp of Voo is a large text and it contains history. So here we have an example of a large text in a non-alphabetic script writing a large history. Uh the pulpavu is not a one-off, because as we read the Popol Vuh and then look at the archaeology, we see iconography in the murals, in the pottery, in the temple walls, that show scenes that are related in the Popol Vuh going back centuries. So that tells us that there is a canon of belief throughout Maya culture, lasting centuries, Deeply rooted into their agricultural cycle, the entire story of the Hero Twins is related to the growth of maize. This is one of the things we forget. When maize was domesticated, a religion was invented. And archaeologists often discuss the spread of maize from mesoamerica into south america north america as a spread of technology they almost never discuss it as a spread of religion but that is what it is maze was a religious cosmovision and wherever the religious cosmovision went maze was the consequence and historians have reversed that they maze is the thing is the primary thing and the religion is the secondary thing I, I I think that can be problematic. In any case, uh, what we get with this history is a deep agricultural <laughs> mythological, in other words, it's not what we need. It's just like the Maya Gold Disc. So you know what? Let's read parts of it. Right, we're going to read parts of it so that I can respond <laughs> to what Brandt asserts. Um, First off, just as a general rule, the pulp of history. Again, I'm looking for a text like the Book of Mormon. We just went over it. It's linear, objective facts, uh, sermons, Isaiah, uh, lots of wars. Right, it's the text of the Book of Mormon. Monotheism, right? I read the pulp of uh, I'll take any any part of that. What what is the pulp of going to give me? Well, it does have, in part, a history of the Maya people, so I'm very interested. It it describes the founding lineages. However, those founding lineages are only described in conjunction with the creation account that the priests are dancing. We can't forget this. If a Mayan priest wanted to tell a history, they would dance. This is not the Book of Mormon. Mm-mm. Remember, the Book of Mormon starts. How does the Book of Mormon start? They have it should start with Nephi going to the temple to steal the statue of Yahweh so he can do the proper dances with the image of the God. That's how it should start. But no, it starts with him trying to get a text. All the religion is textual. By 600 BCE, total anachronism. Uh, the, the brass plates. And it has the law of Moses. And he says, if it weren't for getting these plates, we would not be living the law of Moses, which is a textual law, a textual religion. I, again, deeply anachronistic. All right, so the history of the Popol is told only in conjunction with the oral creation account. The right to rule was intimately connected with the divine sky earth And their authority was never separated from the mythology of the gods. In other words, the history in the Popol Vuh is a mythological history. It's an oral history. It's not a literate history. Uh, There are three founding lineages who are named as well as the places where the lineages formed their first cities. One thing we learn when we read the history in the Popol Vuh is that the place where every event is given, is given equal importance to the name or the event. This is ubiquitous throughout, not just Mesoamerica, but all the Americas. Every uh, culture holds the place equal to the person or event. In other words, if I'm reading uh, a text that originates out of any culture in the Americas, If it's like the Book of Mormon, every time I read, and it came to pass, it should say, and it came to pass in the place of so-and-so, and And then the verse, and it came to pass in the place of, every time you read, and it came to pass, good grief, I am, and it came to pass, there should be a place name, (laughs) Uh, but that we do not get. Um. And then they came to a... Pl- okay, so here is a quote from the Popol Vu, where the first royal lineages emerge, by the way, out of... Uh, they descend from the gods, the gods' uh, birth, the first royal kings, right? It's entirely a mythological narrative. And then they came to a place where they founded a citadel named Thorny Place. Then they examined each division of the citadel. Here are the names of the divisions of Thorny Place. Dry Place, Bark House, Boundary Marker, and Stronghold are the names of the mountains where they stay. All right, we're two feet into the history of the Popol Vuh. And they're going to uh, describe to us, they actually just named the, the royal kings, and then they're going to describe to us all the places that they established. Because places is important. And the names of those places actually describe the place. Thorny Place is a place where there's a lot of uh, foliage with thorns, right? Dry Place, well, there's not a lot of water in that place. Bark house. a lot of trees in that place. Boundary Marker, that's at the edge of our territory. Stronghold, that's where we uh, hold up to fight, <laughs> right? And so the, na- the names describe, uh, again, the, the geography, but they're just as important. And then we get another uh, description that's very interesting. Uh, in Bearded Place is the name of the mountain of their citadel. They stayed there and they settled down there and they tested their fiery splendor there. They ground their gypsum and their plaster in the fourth generation of lords. It was said that Noble Roof Tree ruled when Nine Deer was the Lord Minister. And then the lords named Noble Sweatbath in Itzayul. Reigned as keeper of the mat and keeper of the reception house mat. Well, how's this sounding like the Book of Mormon?
0: I would have much rather read this in semin- seminary. This is very interesting. I like this.
2: They have just established here that uh, Noble Roof Tree and Nine Deer have established in Bearded Place. The Popol Vuh, right? This is, uh, they reigned as keeper of the mat. There is the woven mat that the astro- astronomer priests sit and uh, perform their dances and regulate the society and religion and grow their maize And keeper of the reception house of the mat, that's the temple of the mat, right? So um, we are two feet now in how the Maya are just, are keeping their history. It's mythological. You, you get place names that describe the actual places. Look at the uh, names of the people.
1: Hey John, All right. I want to I, I want to throw a, a Grant uh, argument here because right. Grant kept saying that one of the assumptions you were making is that just because the Mayans did it a certain way, that doesn't mean the Nephites did it that way. And yet he kept going back to the Mayans to make the well. The Mayans did this. The Mayans did that, um, and, and therefore, you know, we we could they could write a history. They could write this. They could write that. So John's argument is wrong. But his argument was the Mayans aren't the Mayans aren't the Nephites. The Mayans aren't the Lamanites. So he spent a lot of time talking about the Popol Vuh, But if the Mayans aren't aren't the Nephites and aren't the Lamanites. What difference does it make?
2: What's in the Pope of Uh, Very good. Uh, So my next couple of slides, I am proving that the Pope of has nothing to do with the Book of Mormon. Okay. So on that, he and I agree. Uh, The epistemology of the Book of Mormon is not created by any culture in Mesoamerica. Uh, That's the whole purpose here. So then, uh, so he and I agree on that, but then you have to ask, where did the Book of Mormon come from? It's from a culture that leaves absolutely no trace.
1: And that's this, the thing he never addressed.
2: Right. He well,
1: never addressed that. He kept he kept saying, because he was arguing from what you called the Mormon, uh, what do you call that Mormon? Uh,
2: the Mono-Mormon theory?
1: Mono-Mormonism, yeah. that Because the Book of Mormon says it existed, it existed, <laughs> even though we can't put a place, a name, a time, anything to it. We know it existed because the book says it existed and it's an ancient text because we know the book of Mormon is an ancient text because Joseph Smith told us it's an ancient text.
0: And that's actually the church's stance. If you look into the, the topics and questions section on the church's website, it says we have no official stance on the geography. We cannot say where it is, what it is, just that it is. So interesting.
2: It's even worse than that with Brandt uh, because, um Stephen Murphy asked him, well, didn't the Nephite writing spread to the Lamanites? So shouldn't we be finding it, you know, in these cultures? And uh, again, is it Messiah 24, where the uh, priests of Noah, according to the text, Mm -hmm. teach the writing system to the Lamanite kings. And the Lamanite kings begin using... The Nephite writing system and their commerce explodes, their trade explodes. I mean, explodes as in uh, greatly increases. Uh, And so the Book of Mormon tells us that the Nephites taught the Lamanites the same writing system and and then the Lamanites were using it and were trading in it, right? And Brandt's response to that is that didn't happen.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. He said... He said the Nephites taught them how to read the Nephite language, but the Lamanites already had their own language uh, that they were trading in. And he only taught them the Nephite language.
2: He said that's ethnocentric writing that whoever wrote that was just believing the Lamanites. You you could only be as sophisticated as the Nephites. If you had the culture of the Nephites and they just described that culture onto any of the Lamanites, Uh, I, I, in in, uh, in, other words, the text doesn't mean what it says. Again, right? the The twenty four Jaredite plates really aren't twenty four plates. They're twenty four libraries of plates. Uh, did uh, Brand does this a couple times where yes, yep. where um, it's not just that it's uh, they, they open the scriptures. They open the scriptures and read the scriptures to the Lamanites. And Brand says that didn't happen. Right, right. They're not carrying around a set of scriptures, which is true. They're not, uh, and so the text is deeply problematic. And the way to get around that is just to say it didn't happen. <laughs> I'm going to pick and choose what happens and doesn't happen uh, based on what I need it to say or mean. Uh, and so, I mean, think of this: we we look for biological DNA of Israelites in the Americas and can't find any, right? So there's this group of people that come over from Jerusalem. It's not just one group. It's Lehi, Nephi and his group. Uh, you know, there's servants, there's two families, you know, could be 30, 40, 50 people. We don't know. Could have been a cruise liner that uh, Nephi built. <laughs> we don't or Or just a raft, you know, we don't know. Um, but also the Mulekites come over, right? We don't know how many people there. Also the Jaredites come over. Boy, there's just waves of these people coming over. We should have some trace of DNA, but we don't have any DNA. Uh, why don't we have DNA? What's the argument? The argument is there was such a massive indigenous population that as they m- married into it, you lost the DNA. That's the argument to get rid Of the DNA problem. But now you have a different problem. You've come over with this fully literate technology, writing on plates, fully literate religion, completely decoupled from nature. Your religion isn't based on maize or the agricultural cycle, it's based on an individual savior, redeemer, God, right? You've got You've got literacy, you've got alphabets, you've got a decimal system, you've got all of this cultural technology. You're intermarrying with all these people that uh, make the DNA go away. You're telling me that you did not share any of your traditions with all the people you intermarried with, right? Because yeah, exactly. there should be a fingerprint, right? That they should be re- uh, reading and writing in that if if you're going to solve the dna problem by saying they married and intermixed with all these people then you got to say well then they shared their you know language and traditions and religion you don't marry someone while they're worshiping baal at the altar and you're worshiping yahweh right you're you're going to say oh no that's sinful you, you yeah. can't do that so uh, the nature of your belief is going to make you share your religion, your monotheism, your literacy. Uh, so you they want both arguments. There's no DNA. Okay, that's a problem. That means they weren't there. Oh, wait a second. They intermarried. Okay, then their tradition shared. Oh no, they didn't share their traditions. It was only a small group of people. Well, if it's only a small group of literate people, that means the majority of the people weren't literate. That means you're in an oral epistemology, which means it's agricultural and cosmological. Oh, no, it was just enough literacy for it not to be oral. Oh, Jesus. Sure enough, I cannot win this argument.
1: <laughs> yeah. I, the, the question that I kept
2: uh, bringing up when
1: he kept saying that is why would the Lamanites have a different language than the Nephites? They came from the same place, from they the same brothers. parents, they learned yeah. the same writing. Laman and Lemuel knew how to write just as much as Nephi did. Why didn't they pass on Semitic writing? Why would they have a different system than the Nephites have? That's the equivalent of, you know, the the pilgrims came over, you know, from England, uh, Holland first, but, you know, they were English. They started speaking the English language. 250 years later here in America, we still speak English, even though germans came over even though there were people coming from all different french people who spoke all different languages not to mention they mixed the native the native peoples were here yet there's still 250 years later there's still traces of uh, uh english is still there the customs are there everything is there that's a quarter of the time of the book of mormon time period you know is a thousand years we're 250 years in And you can't hardly tell England from from America other than they drive on the left-hand side of the road. So, but but somehow these people are completely different. The Nephites and the Lamanites, in just a matter of time, speak a different language, have a different culture, can't communicate with each other. Uh, The the argument just doesn't make sense based on the story. The story doesn't line up.
2: Well, I agree, Landon. I... um... I mean, they would argue, I guess, that uh, uh, Laman and Lemuel could read, but they didn't teach uh, reading and writing to their posterity, and therefore it was lost. And that's why Nephi needed the brass plate, so that the language could be taught from generation to generation, but not to the people they intermarried with.
0: (laughs) And can I point out, John, our favorite movie, The Oath, which we saw in the theaters all together...
2: You are That terrible. was one of Big the major movies. parts of
0: the movie. A <laughs> Nephite Moroni married, after he taught her about modesty and not to be a licked cupcake, <laughs> married a Lamanite concubine. And one of the first things he did is start to teach her to read and the traditions and to write. And she learned it. And they were reading and writing and inscribing and, and sharing notes and paper. So the movie The Oath shows that exactly. You are going to transmit what you know how to do, your system, to the people in your family, you just are.
1: But even if you hold that to be true, uh, just like that, even if he didn't teach his kids to write and they lost it, they would have then been an oral society and they would have spoken the oral language that they brought with them. They wouldn't yep. have created a whole new language in in just a matter of a thousand years. They completely changed the language to where uh, Nobody could speak with each other, and that would be at the end of time. The story's going on this whole time. They would speak Hebrew, or they would have spoke whatever language they came with. And the Nephites and the Lamanites would have spoke the same language, regardless of whether they wrote or not.
2: I I mean, there, there are. I mean, these are good points. Uh, Just quickly to address Rebecca, Rebecca, there's a great insight Uh, in that movie. The first thing he does is teach her how to read and write. Look, the nature of belief is such that if you believe in a thing religiously, you are going to share it with your family, clan, and tribe. In fact, not only are you going to share it, you're going to demand it. That's the nature of religious belief. So if their religion is textual, and it is from right up front, then you will spread that religion through literacy. So one of the arguments they make is it's a very small group of people that that contradicts the kind of religiosity the book of mormon is. It's a literate religion which means the religiosity of that religion would spread literacy. So I that's a that's just what it is. And on your point Landon um you know yeah. right they speak hebrew or aramaic or egyptian or <laughs> all three they're polyglots
1: they, they write I egyptian know. i think they speak hebrew because yeah, they, they would speak. have written in hebrew had they been able right. to make it short yeah. enough
2: <laughs> R- right they right. speak they speak hebrew um you know if they're swallowed up in an indigenous culture without spreading the writing you know they'll argue that that language just gets lost but i mean here we are arguing over the absence of evidence yes and you uh i mean this is all non-falsifiable so it doesn't matter what the arguments are there's always more absence of evidence to argue from i i'm saying show me evidence i you've I, I took a step back and said, let's look at the forest from the trees. The Book of Mormon does not belong in this forest. If you want to argue, then show me the trees. Show me, show me the writing, show me the sermons, show me the Tumbaga plates, show, you know, show me, show me. And the DNA, you can't. Well, I don't know. Do we want to read more of the Popal Vu? I, I think we just uh We kind of sidetracked there, didn't we? (laughs) I
0: love it, though. It's so interesting. I love this.
2: Um, Here is a description of one of the kings uh, in the royal line. And so you can get a sense of how they're describing the people in the Popol Vuh. Uh, Let's see. Rebecca, can you read that?
0: Oh, yeah. This is just fascinating. Like I said, if this were what seminary, if what we were studying... I would have been there every day. This is just <laughs> so interesting. Uh, so it says, and when war befell their canyons and citadels, it was by means of their genius that the Lord Plumed Serpent and the Lord Noble Sweatbath blazed with power. Plumed Serpent became a true Lord of Genius. On one occasion, he would climb up to the sky. On another, he would go down the road to, and how do I pronounce that, Shibaba. John? Shababa. Shabalba. I like that. Underworld. On an, oh, the underworld. Okay. On another occasion, he would be serpentine, becoming an actual serpent. On yet another occasion, he would make himself aquiline and on, and another feline. He would become like an actual eagle or a jaguar in his appearance. On another occasion, it would be a pool of blood. He would become nothing but a pool of blood, Truly, his being was that of a lord of genius, importance to name or event.
2: Well, that's so that's fascinating. A, 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 I think that's a fragmented sentence. Uh, in any case, that's uh, uh, Plume Serpent, one of the progenitors. And this is how he won his battles. Compare that to how Moroni, Captain Moroni is described in the Book of Mormon. Uh, Landon, do you want to read that?
1: And Moroni was a strong and mighty man. He was a man of a perfect understanding. Yea, a man that did not delight in bloodshed, a man who sold did joy in the liberty and the freedom of his country and his brethren from bondage and slavery. Yea, a man whose heart did swell with thanksgiving to his God for the many privileges and blessings which he bestowed upon his people, a man who did labor exceedingly for the welfare and safety of his people. Yea, and he was a man who was firm in the faith of Christ, and he had sworn with an oath to defend his people, his rights and his country and his religion, even to the loss of his blood. Yea, verily, verily I say unto you, if all men had been and were and ever would be like unto Moroni, behold the very powers of hell would have been shaken forever. Yea, the devil would never have power over the hearts of the children of men. Quite a guy that Moroni, but he's no Lord Noble sweatbath.
0: <laughs> Not at all.
2: <laughs> you know, it uh look, there are some Again, uh, here he is, uh, yay, and he was a man who was firm in the faith of Christ, sworn an oath uh, to defend his people, his rights, his country, and his religion. You know what? Those concepts don't exist. There are no rights in the Americas, right? Uh, uh, He he, uh, did not like bloodshed. Well, the power of these kings in the Popol Vuh is they could turn themselves into anything and conquer and spill any blood they wanted. <laughs> I the the point is is that um, uh, liberty is a huge theme that's non-existent in Mesoamerica. Um, uh, defending his country and his religion, uh, there's no empire that there's every city state has its own king. There are a lot of problems, but the point I'm making is: look at the two different styles of history. Uh, w- w- one, we have a Christianized general, and the other one is a mythological oral uh, hero. Okay, that that's the difference. And um, one thing I like about what
1: you're doing that that they didn't do in their argument is you're actually showing us. You're saying, okay, mm-hmm. here's the popovu. Here's the Book of Mormon. Let's compare. All they kept doing was saying, "Oh yeah, all the elements we need is are there. They're all there," but they never showed us. They never went and said, "Here's an example uh, of the Popovu and how it looks like the Book of Mormon, or why we could make this." Uh, they, they just made generalizations. Everything we need is in there.
2: Well, um, I got. I think there's one more example here. Uh, the Popovu in the middle of. Uh, telling us about the royal lineages. They give us kings. They give us sort of uh, a list of the different generations. Basically, name of this king, name of this king, name of this king, name of this king. And then uh we, we get these little asides. In the middle of it, we get one ritual hymn, a song. And I think that's spectacular. Because here is something they're actually singing and dancing. And um, and so it's in the white. Rebecca, will you read that? Mm-hmm. So
0: you're saying that this is actually a song, something yes. that they would uh, have chanted? or
2: The Kings pro- probably sung and danced.
0: Okay. This is just wonderful. It says, wait on this blessed day, thou hurricane, thou heart of the sky, earth, thou giver of ripeness and freshness, and thou giver of daughters and sons, spread thy stain, spill thy drops of green and yellow. Give life and beginning to those I bear and beget, that they might multiply and grow, nurturing and providing for thee, calling to thee along the roads and paths, on rivers, in canyons, beneath the trees and bushes. Give them their daughters and sons. I love that.
1: Are they talking about corn? <laughs> uh, yes. Did you how say did corn you, or corn? How did you know that? How did you know that, Landon? You're green and yellow, and yeah. uh, the da- daughters and sons—they want the yeah. seeds of the corn it's, to drop this and be is fertile sexual,
2: and ripe. This is sexual imagery. Yep, and agricultural—it's fertility, hymn, right? That so. Th- this is important. That of all the songs and dances they recorded, this is the one they record, and it, and it's probably the king sings a a ritual hymn to the heart of sky earth. That's a deity. uh, Thou giver of ripeness and freshness, um, spread thy stain, spill the drops of green and yellow, give life. Yes, this is, uh, uh, it's the eats. It's a referencing semen, but also rain. This is the fertility of the agricultural cycle which brings forth life as well as sons and daughters. So he's praying for a healthy agricultural cycle as well as a healthy population. It's the same thing. This is the cosmovision of this ritual song. Now, we don't have any ritual songs in the Book of Mormon. The closest thing we have is uh, the Psalm of Nephi, right? His prayer, which uh, many uh, Mormon scholars have said, it's like a psalm or hymn, a song. So I thought, okay, well, let's read that. Landon, you want to read that? Behold, my soul delighteth in the things of
1: the Lord, and my heart pondereth continually upon the things which I have seen and heard. Nevertheless, notwithstanding the great goodness of the Lord in showing me his great marvelous works, my heart exclaimeth, O wretched man that I am, yea, my heart sorroweth because of my flesh, my soul grieveth because of mine iniquities. I am encompassed about because of the temptations and the sins which do so easily beset me. And when I desire to rejoice, my heart groaneth because of my sins. Nevertheless, I know in whom I have trusted. My God hath been my support. He hath led me th- through mine affliction in the wilderness, and he hath preserved upon me the waters of the great deep. He hath filled me with his love even unto the consuming of my flesh. He hath confounded mine enemies unto the causing of them to quake before me. Behold, he hath heard, me, heard my cry by day, and he hath given me knowledge by visions in the night time. Oh, Lord, I have trusted in thee, and I will trust in thee forever. I will not put my trust in the arm of flesh, for I know that cursed is he that putteth his trust in the arm of flesh. Yea, cursed is he that putteth his trust in, a, in man, or maketh flesh his arm. That's got sexual chemistry, too. Is he talking about masturbation? <laughs> <laughs> arm
0: of flesh? Is that what you're asking, Landon?
2: <laughs> that. You know what? I have never read it that way. Me neither. I'm glad Me I'm glad planted. we feared these. <laughs> <laughs> now, I will never read it the same way again. Uh, that's that's the way the church makes you feel. Oh wretched
1: man that I am, <laughs> the sins that I, you know, and what yeah. sin did you sin, really commit? Sin, so sin. that's, that's in, my guess. <laughs> yep, in every sentence,
0: sin, sin, sin. That there it is.
2: Well, I again, I'm just showing uh, we have in the first one the king singing about the fertility cycle and the fertility of the people and the crops. And we have in the second one, a very individual, I mean, this is Christianity. It's the Mm -hmm. individual soul uh, in relationship with the individual redeemer, God. It's completely decoupled from agriculture. Uh, and, And so there it is. So sure enough, these are two entirely different epistemological models. So when Brand Garner says, look, they wrote history, well, yes, but it's not the same epistemological history as the Book of Mormon. It's not even close. It's completely different. In fact, here I have a quote from a Alan J. Christensen, who is a myanologist, translated the pulp of. Vue. And he writes, quote, the Poblavu does not contain what we would call objective history. <laughs> it is instead a collection of traditions, partly based in historical fact and partly based on mythic interpretation to describe the rise to power of their own ancestral lineages, specifically that of the Kavec, who came to dominate the Highland Maya region in the 15th century. This mixture of Highland Maya, Lowland Maya, and Mexican-influenced cultures Ultimately gave birth to the traditions contained in the Pulp of voo. And quote, look, there it is. This is not this uh, the Pulp of Vue is oral history belonging to oral epistemology. So that writing and thinking and culture is not producing or being produced by a fully literate book of Mormon culture. Okay.
0: Can I ask a question? Can yeah. I ask how problematic is it that, as you described, their religion was maize, it was corn, which is never mentioned anywhere in the Book of Mormon. Isn't that extraordinarily problematic?
2: Yeah, look, uh, uh, <laughs> uh, we don't get a, a discourse on wheat or barley in the Bible, and yet they're an agricultural cycle. We, we, but so, look, this is what happens. In First Temple Judaism, they're singing and dancing to the rain. You know, we forget there are no grocery stores in the ancient world. There are no soy lattes or faculty lounges. Uh, They have to grow everything by the sweat of their brow. So most of their religious energy is surviving. We are going to do our rain dances. We are going to... That's what Baal is. Baal is a storm god. Well, you know, what that means is he brings the rains. He brings, the, you know, with the rest of the pantheon, brings the fertility of the crops, and he's a war god because the thunder, you know, he's going to... people If you're successful with your crop growing, those people over there are going to come with their sticks and take it from you. So that's the, that's the nature of the ancient world. So uh, that all existed in First Temple Judaism. We don't know about it because their temple is sacked. Their city's destroyed. Their crops are taken over. They're uh, forcibly sent into Babylon as slaves to grow other people's crops. And so literally the religion becomes decoupled from their agricultural cycle when they turn it into a text. They had to do that because they were forced out of their sacred place. Forced out of their sacred land, forced out of their sacred cult, which kept the crops growing. Uh we assume that the religion of the Bible is, you know, again, as Mormon teaches it, it's the original revelation. No, it comes very late after the loss of the cultic tradition. Um, so as a result. Uh, What would we expect to find in the Book of Mormon? Why is there no mention of maize? Because uh, Mesoamerican religion is all about growing the maize. Their gods are associated with maize, right? The the first human being grows from maize. Uh, It it is a astrological, agricultural-based religious system because it has to be. Yeah, you you sing and dance your agriculture because that's how you survive. Yeah, every generation has to learn how to do this in order to survive, so it, it's wed to your religious structure. Um, in which case you would expect to find some references to maize if the culture originates in the book of Mormon. But because you don't get any agricultural motifs such as the hymn we just read in the Book of Mormon, literally. The theology of the Book of Mormon has been completely decoupled from nature, from agriculture, from astrology. Therefore, it doesn't belong in Mesoamerica. The only argument you have left is, okay, so none of the religions in Mesoamerica were Nephite. So Nephite exists with no evidence of it. The Nephite culture. So where did the evidence go? Well, again... um, so they pick and choose their arguments. Here's Brandt. He says, the Book of Mormon is not a fully literate text. The Book of Mormon is incipient literacy. It represents just the beginning of literacy and is not widespread literacy. Writing and record keeping was only with the royalty, only with a small group of people. Here's why that argument doesn't work. If uh, less than 10% of your society reads and writes, over 90% of your society is oral in order to run that you're going to be living in an oral culture um also the book of mormon theology uh is not rooted in agriculture uh so where does it come from i you, you know, it doesn't come from 600 bce It takes centuries after the deportation of the Jews for this kind of religion to develop. So uh, again, uh, he argues the Book of Mormon is incipient literacy, only a small group. If it's only a small group, then you're in secondary orality. Uh, Messiah 24 didn't happen. This is where the priests of Noah teach the writing to the Lamanites. Uh, Egocentric and ethnocentric writing. Also, when they opened the scriptures to the lame nights, that didn't happen. It's a figure of speech or translation issue. Also, Adam didn't have a record. He didn't read or write. Uh, so, Brant is picking and choosing what the text means around this issue of literacy. Right? So... So it's it's funny because he says
1: Adam didn't have a record, even though it says right in there, Adam uh, wrote the record, uh, which would mean he wrote. uh, And he says that didn't happen. Well, why would he say that didn't happen if the text says it didn't happen? Because he looks at history and he says, there was no writing at that time. So it's impossible that he could have mm -hmm. written it, which is exactly what you're doing right here is you're saying it's impossible for this to have happened because these things didn't exist at that time. And yet you're making generalities uh, for the very same thing that he is admitting. Not only does he say Adam didn't write, uh, he he said uh, the Tower of Babel was was not literal. Uh, all the things that were necessary for a religion right. to be true, he's saying, oh, those are myths. But because history clearly shows they're myths. And yet the Book of Mormon somehow is true when these other things are myths. And they depend on that yeah, story right. happening for them to even be real
2: that's correct i correct it's
0: dangerous to think things all the way through (laughs) it's too problematic you have to stop you can't think them through you can't follow that straight line
2: again this works within the mono-mormon theory right this is kerry mulestein i'm going to pick and choose the pieces i need in order for this to work um I, you take one step to the left or to the right of the Mono-Mormon theory and suddenly you're like, somebody's farting in a water pot.
0: <laughs> I'm going to make an AI of that, John, because you've mentioned it so many times. Yeah, I don't, I don't
2: know where that came from. In my brain.
0: <laughs> I am making an AI and I'm going to reveal it later in the show. We're going to add it, Landon, okay?
1: <laughs> if I'm glad we can. We add that in. It's funny, though, that you can do that, but they can't because if you take the argument, Adam didn't write, Adam didn't have a record, the Tower of Babel didn't exist, the Nephites didn't exist. The Book of Mormon is a production of, you know, 18th century production uh, of Joseph Smith or of, of, you know, that of his time period. Everything, everything works. (laughs) So you've got one side that works all the way. And the other side problem after problem after problem yet we're supposed to believe that that's the truth when the other side the other argument goes along without without issues
0: that's called faith landon it
1: faith. is
2: called faith 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 and reason i i you know yeah i you know uh, I, I look I, back I, on I, my own tbm days and i just shelved everything that mm-hmm. was a problem until I had a storage unit. <laughs> uh, and so uh, y- y- yeah, I you know what what can I say? I I have to say the 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 um, I think the Adam not having writing, which is what Brant says is really problematic uh, because I think that's Moses chapter 6 where we're told he has a, a writing system. He reads and writes and teaches, the writing to his children. And then the next line says, now that same priesthood. So the priesthood of Adam exists within the writing of Adam. And so whoever composed the revelation of Moses is equating writing and record keeping with the priesthood from the first generation. And of course, as you read the scriptures, this is consistent. Abraham has the uh, authority of the fathers, the priesthood of the fathers, and it's contained in records passed down from generation to generation. Brother of Jared, the same thing. Enoch, the same thing. Whoever is writing these revelations and these scriptures has a completely literate view of history going back to day one. They are completely unaware of orality and secondary orality and the epistemological differences and that is baked into Mormon scripture so there you go Um, all of our assumptions about oh, let's see Uh, Messiah 24 uh, didn't happen Uh, yeah we talked about that again um, you know they opened the scriptures to the Lamanites and he says no they didn't open the scriptures they didn't carry he's just picking and choosing what the verses mean to fit just as you said Landon what history gives us and then of course he argues our assumptions about the revelatory process or assumptions we have no idea how joseph smith received these revelations sure enough i i have no idea um uh i so i he's within that ambiguity he is therefore saying this can be plausible um and then finally, whatever they wanted to record or write, they could do regardless of the writing system. For some reason, Lundwall assumes that the kind of writing you have is going to restrict the kind of text you're going to write. Something about the writing system that limits what you can think. It's really not my argument. I, I mean, he was. I think Brant listened to our podcast on two times speed because there are a couple times where he just directly misquotes me he says that um i said that the character's document was a rubbing and i never said that i i said why wasn't there a rubbing yeah. of the characters on the right. plates why why in all of the descriptions of the plates do we only have generalities no one counted the plates no one drew the characters mm-hmm. it had it published no one drew a, a picture of the stack. They they could do that. They did it frequently. And yet we have zero disc, uh, tight description of the plates. We just have general. I, I remember it being this heavy. And, you know, I, I knew, so in any case, um, look, I'm not saying that um, their writing restricts what they can think. I, I that's not what I mean if that's what he if thinks what I said or maybe I said something that maybe I misspoke I, I can't think of where he's getting that what I'm saying is orality structures thought and literacy structures thought and what I want to see is an alphabetic Semitic script the reason why an alphabet is important to me is because it's much easier to learn you start getting much larger population demographics that are literate. When you only have to memorize a writing system that's less than 30 characters long, as opposed to one that has a thousand characters and is filled with puns, right? Those Mayan glyphs, pun on other Mayan glyphs, they pun on ritual scenarios, cosmological scenarios, homophones of other words. Oh my gosh, memorizing all that is extraordinarily difficult. Uh, now I have a writing system that's you know, 24, 26 characters. It's all phonetic. It makes a difference. It, it increases your ability to read and to grow literacy. And the religion of the Book of Mormon is fully literate. You worship it by opening the scriptures. Even if they're not opening the scriptures literally, which is what Brant's saying, they have a written text. Their religion is kept in writing. And when your belief system is kept in writing, literacy literacy grows. It grows exponentially because people want to learn to read and write. Right? And so we get literacy growing from the birth of Christianity through the Middle Ages. 5%, 10%, 20%, 40%. Um, because your religion and if it's, and if you uh, belong to a parish where hardly anyone reads and write, what do you have? You have a, a church that has images of all the scripture scenes built into the walls and windows, right? So therefore I should also be seeing that,
0: <laughs> that <laughs> right? That's a
2: good point. Temples <laughs> with, with all the story, Nephite stories displayed on the walls and on the altars i go to Mesoamerica and i see sure enough altars and temples and there's my maze god and there's my underworld god and there's my hero twins and you know they <laughs> uh so anyway it's um all right here's my conclusion have i have i bored you Has this been fun?
0: This is (laughs) like every single one of our episodes, John, we are absolutely riveted to what you were saying. You just break our minds completely open to the point where we go, how did we not see this before? It's just amazing.
2: Rapley argues from technology, which has nothing to do. Thank you, Rebecca. Yeah. Rapley argues from technology was nothing to do with the content of the text. Garner's approach of convergent parallelisms is also so broad as to be unfalsifiable. In order to bring any of our arguments into any form of historical reality, one must have diagnostic pins coupled with the text, archeology, span linguistics, DNA, anthropological evidence. There is none. There is no biological DNA. There is no cultural DNA. Apologetics is largely a textual game of creating mobile goalposts within the text itself. They prove the text from the text. You can do this ad infinitum and thus keep these kinds of proofs are endless even as they are meaningless. I assert that the text is the thing that beheads the king. The thought world of the Book of Mormon did not exist in the time, geographical and cultural context in which it was supposed to have existed. It is in the end a great and marvelous anachronism. All right, so I mean, look, Uh, because they're constantly picking and choosing what the text means. They have no material pins, no no sermons on infant baptism written on tobogga beads, right? No no plates, no iconography, no writing systems, no language, no DNA. Um, No location. (laughs) Right. It's just a forever argument of what could be a a, ser- a series of we have this here, we have this here we have this here voila we we have the probability I, I it's it's always unfalsifiable. in the end their arguments are unfalsifiable and uh and therefore you can't falsify them. well to me that's deeply problematic. it works within mono Mormonism. It does not work anywhere else. All right. I think that's my presentation. <laughs> well, that's amazing. We and I, oh, go ahead. Rebecca. I was going
0: to say, I think the bottom line is for most people on the other side of that is so you're saying there's a chance. If it's unfalsifiable, you're saying there's a chance, and you can hang everything your entire life on that. And unfortunately, people have to, you know, because the other side of it is. To look at things with eyes wide open, and that's hard.
1: Can I tell you real quick my interpretation of what I saw as I watched these two? Um, first of all, rapidly, uh, if I'm saying his name right, <laughs> uh, I, I wanted to get I wanted to get a print out of that because the number of times as he said, might or probably, uh, in in explaining what happened, he said, well, it might be that this happened, or probably this happened, or it could be that this happened that is not evidence. If you had evidence, bring forth the evidence, not, not just a might probably maybe could have, would have. And so he lost me right off at the beginning when he just kept saying might probably. Uh, and, and he was bringing up again, like you said, things that had nothing to do with the area, nothing to do with, uh, any of the book of Mormon. He never tied anything to the book of Mormon. He was just trying to produce, like you said, technology, uh, and that's that's all he produced. He didn't give an explanation of how all of these technologies came together in one culture, and yet we can't we don't know where that culture is or how it developed. Um, with Brandt, I was really disappointed in Brandt's because I, I'd heard how what a what a scholar that Brandt was, and yet I saw him make an argument against yours and then turn around and use the exact argument of telling you why you were wrong, and he'd use it to to prove his point for instance he was talking about chiasmus and and uh he said yeah uh the uh, mayan story he, he said how chiasmus was you know chiasmus is a proof that the book of mormon because it was in uh they had chiasmus in in the near east and now they have chiasmus in the book of mormon so that shows that they brought it with him well then he turns around and he he says but the the language didn't transfer the mayans there was no transfer of language or writing or knowledge of that and yet then he goes uh some of the storytellers the ancient mayan storytellers would talk in chiasmus well then you just said that they developed chiasmus completely separate which means it's a normal human uh way of talking and therefore the chiasmus in the book of mormon mean nothing (laughs) either that or only the chiasmus transfer but the writing system didn't transfer yeah. And then he started talking about gods and he he, he said uh, that that people would uh, that if you took and you said God uh, he said you'd do stuff like you'd say, well, God uh, if there was a God, he would do it this way and since he didn't do it that way, there is no God. And he there he said that that's that's flawed thinking. you maybe it's that your assumption is wrong. Uh, and so I said, well, shouldn't we look at that same thing with the Book of Mormon? Isn't your assumption wrong that because there's a Book of Mormon and Joseph Smith said it was historical, that it's historical? Maybe we need to look at the assumption as the Book of Mormon may not be what it claims it is. Maybe it is a hoax. And if we look at that assumption, all of a sudden the pieces all fall into place if you do that. So he was making one argument, but he wouldn't He wouldn't, uh, He'd wouldn't. turn it around. And then I was also disappointed because it was clear that they hadn't listened to... Uh, any of the other things that you presented. He talked about the characters and he said, I have no idea how John would have come up with that. Well, we had an entire episode on the characters of the Book of Mormon. He also said, I don't know how he came up with the lo- that it's a logographic script. That he- I have no idea how he did that. Well, we had a whole episode on that. We explained it. John is backing up his work. He's saying, here's how I found it. He's presenting the evidence. At least listen to it before you make an argument and say you have no idea when he actually said how he he came up. So that was the other thing I was really disappointed with, uh, was that uh, it's clear that they didn't even take the time to listen to all the episodes. And we told them that we had multiple episodes coming out where we were going to address these things, but they felt they had to defend against it right away. And the reason they did that was because they knew that what you were saying is damaging to the Book of Mormon, and they had to jump to its defense. Because they're in this mono Mormonism thing that uh, that you have, they must defend it. They already have the assumption, which is the very thing he accused you of being uh, of of doing was jumping to a bunch of assumptions. While he can't answer any of the questions, he just says, "Well, the Mayans could do it, therefore the Nephites could do it, even though the two aren't linked at all."
2: Yeah, I I followed all that exactly. <laughs> Uh yeah you, you know look um outside of the mormon apologist world the arguments don't work so right you know do do you think brant
1: gardner would ever go to a conference on mesoamerica sponsored by let's say harvard university mm-hmm and get up and present reformed egyptian in the americas <laughs> no
0: that's a good question landon that is a really good question
1: he knows he'd be laughed off the stage mm-hmm. yeah you know, he tells I, it to inside mormonism they'll tell it over and over again
2: i have a hilarious anecdotal story uh a month ago i was talking to uh, a friend of mine, he's uh, Mexican. His name is Poncho. I call him Poncho. Uh, you know, he's a blue collar worker, and uh, we were talking about these episodes. He said, "You know, we were talking about my episodes and and you know the discussion." And he was really interested. He said, "Tell me, you know, he's a baptized Mormon, but he hasn't been to the Mormon church in you know years and years." And um, so I I was telling him about. The argument in our first episode right here's how oral peoples think here's how literate peoples think and he he would ask what's the counter argument what is the church arguing so I say (laughs) here's some of their arguments and then he had this really interesting question he says do archaeologists use the book of Mormon with their archaeology I said no There's no archaeologist that uses the Book of Mormon to go out and find cities. And he says, well, don't they use the Bible in archaeology? I say, yes, yes. The archaeologists over there, they actually use the Bible because the names of the cities, actually, you can find them. There is historical content in the Bible. And so he goes, so... Archaeologists in the Bible, but none with the Book of Mormon. Well, doesn't that tell you that it's not historical? This is Poncho.
0: <laughs> and I bet it happened really fast, just like that. That's the thing. It clicks.
2: I just say, this is, I, I was brilliant. It was brilliant. I could have hugged that man.
0: <laughs> Let's have Poncho on. I would love that. You know what I mean? Because you he can see the great. wheels turning. You would be like- great. I see it. I see it. And, and I think a lot of people don't know that there is actually a form letter that the Smithsonian Institute has to send to people who keep writing them about the Book of Mormon. And we'll link it in the show notes because maybe people aren't aware, but enough people have written in about the Book of Mormon, treating it as if it's factual, treating it as if um, other archaeologists and scientists should take what's in it as real, that the form letter says... We do. This is not real. Basically, we do not believe this. This is not science. This is not archaeology. It's a form letter that they send out. I will link that in the show notes. It's from the Smithsonian, because enough people contacted them with this false assumption.
2: Yeah.
1: It's well we're at 2 we're at 2 hours or thereabouts and since this is a live uh, we probably uh <laughs> I can have know a lot people want to keep going <laughs> in the live conversation so
0: <laughs> I know they want to keep going <laughs> I'm totally kidding no but we could I mean this series and and we don't know if this is the last one you know we kind of had in mind we might do 6 which we've now accomplished but I don't necessarily know that it's the last one and I also don't necessarily know that we won't kind of morph it into another topic and start another series. I mean, it's just fascinating to discuss. And I think that our listeners and our viewers across the board love it. And I think that when you go on other podcasts, which you do, and we love that you do, I think people are absolutely fascinated. You have audiences who love you everywhere, John. I hope you know that. They absolutely do. Rebecca, who's
2: reading the Pulpel text on any Mormon podcast? That's <laughs> what I'm saying. Or uh, ex-Mormon.
0: Yeah, we're kind of unique. And I do have to say that um there are awards called the Brodies for in the post and nuanced Mormon world. And our episode with you, the very first one, has been nominated for that award, which is kind of a, you know, excellence in post-Mormonism. So um if anybody can figure out how to find that and vote for it, I think it would be awesome because that episode is what kind of set this all off. Don't you think, Landon? I mean, it just turned everybody on its ear and everybody started thinking about things in a whole new way. I love the viewers that would um, send us messages and say, I've watched Dr. Lundwall's episode several times. I have notebooks full of notes. I mean, you're having this impact of, of just helping people think about things in ways that we've never been able to think about it before because it was so muddled or confused and and like poncho once you finally understand it and you explain it so clearly just it's like the light goes on and and then you kind of start from there in looking at things in a whole new way don't you agree with that landon it's just been incredible
1: oh yeah absolutely i I would love to see john uh win that uh, for that episode because yep. it the was so powerful. Heart. He'll probably lose to, you know, did Nephi use foot powder or something uh, like that? But uh, I know. that seems to be... The
0: Scholarship doesn't like sell. That. I understand that. I do get it.
1: So viewers go out there and tell them that, that that's worth it. <laughs>
2: we'll
0: still putting out... We will still continue tell you putting what, We'll do out. another
2: uh, podcast. I don't know on what. I'll wear a cape and goggles. That's and easy. maybe... Maybe we'll get nominated. <laughs> Maybe
0: we'll get some play. Maybe we'll get some play. That's exactly it. So, nope. And it's not about the awards. It's about the scholarship. And again, I will say that we have um, put a call out to anybody who wants to come and, and talk to John about this. You know, any other scholars, not even on our show, wherever they'd like to meet or invite John onto their program, because we're trying to engage in scholarship, in civil dialogue, And we understand the point of view that people are coming from. We understand it because we all have those points of view. We all were raised in the church for decades after decades after decades. So we get it. And we would love to see some more interaction. That's kind of our goal, isn't it, Landon? I mean, we haven't been able to accomplish it yet. Nobody has even responded to me when I put calls out for that. And of course, we were banned from the Book of Mormon Central dinner, so we couldn't really Interact with anybody there, but we're still trying, John, to, to get you yeah, out there.
1: I, I'd invite Brant or Neil uh, to yeah, come on and exactly.
0: Yeah. Jared, and likewise, yeah. I know
1: John's reached out to the Murph uh, so, and said yeah. you're willing to go on his show and answer I any think, questions. So
0: yeah, healthy debate, not even debate, just discussion.
2: You're right. Right. I again, uh, uh, Steve seems like a very likable guy. So yep. Brant. Yep. No, Neil. Very likable guy. I hopefully I wasn't too uh, smarmy. I did Starkey. mention water pot a couple times. Yeah. <laughs>
0: I am making that graphic. I guarantee if I haven't shown it by now on the show,
2: I <laughs> owe everybody a dollar. Yeah. I'm making it. I'm, I'm, oh, God.
0: All right. Let's let everybody go. But boy, it's been really entertaining. And it's not the end. We're going to have John on again for who knows what's coming up next. We, we've we got some things in the works that we're thinking about. So let's stay tuned to that. So uh, please comment. Oh my gosh, there was so much to unpack in this episode. Please let us know what you thought about this discussion and the scholarship and the Book of Mormon. Let us know your thoughts. And please don't forget to like and subscribe to Mormonish if you'd like to be made aware when new episodes come out. Like. The this fabulous episode you can hit that notification bell and it'll let you know when we've dropped a new episode and as always we have links in our show notes um, to paypal and to venmo if you'd like to financially help mormonish podcast and we sure appreciate all of that you that do it just it means so much to us and we will sign off once again from mormonish thanks everybody thanks john thanks landon bye bye everybody thanks for joining us for another episode of mormonish We really appreciate our listeners and would love to hear from you if you have a story you'd like to share. You can email us at mormonishpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and on our website, mormonishpodcast.org. And don't forget to look for us on YouTube and like and subscribe. Keep joyful, everybody.